The Horse Race is brought to you by Benchmark Strategies. Benchmark is setting a new standard as Boston's fastest growing public affairs consulting firm. To know more, connect with Benchmark on Twitter at Benchmark Boston. This week on The Horse Race, we're looking at the local impact of the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Then we'll have an in-depth conversation with State Auditor Diana DiZoglio. It's Thursday, March 16th. the horse race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and elections in Massachusetts. I'm Jennifer Smith, here with my co-host Lisa Kaczynski. Steve Cazella is out this week, either, I don't know, filling out some sort of sports bracket or getting audited. I don't know. He's up to something. Uh, Lisa, are you following whatever sports are happening this week? I'm following our NCAA president slash former governor Charlie Baker talk about the sports because... Sorry to report to our dear listeners, I don't follow college basketball. I love that we've absolutely staked out a brand of we do not know what the local staple Kowloon is, and we also do not follow basketball. Please do not add us. We are uh, not from here, and also we aren't very tall. Well, I will say I played basketball briefly before they decided that I was terrible at it and also way too short. Um... And that's part of the reason that I don't watch it, because maybe more so in professional basketball, they just travel all the time. And as a person who used to get called for traveling, it really upsets me. So instead of watching the sports, I watch the former governor talk about the sports on the CNN. Did you also watch the current governor talk about uh, what looked like it was going to be a really bad nor'easter, but then I guess it wasn't in the Boston area? I will say it was damp. It was... A mixture of different types of precipitation that didn't really do much. And the governor tracked all the way out to Springfield in that mess, uh, which was interesting. But she didn't do the traditional, like, talk to the press before the storm thing. And there were actually, like, some TV crews waiting outside the executive suite, like, on Tuesday or Monday, like, before the storm. And they were like, is she going to come out and do something? And... She did not. And that was, I don't know, maybe we're seeing a new tradition start where we don't have to stand in front of a salt pile before every storm. Frankly, I'm just devastated by the lack of Mima Vest content. But speaking of devastating content, and this is going to be a very difficult segue, um, all the banks are devastating to me with what they've been doing with the contents of their vaults. How is that? And why am I saying that? So we had two banks fail, uh, one of which has a particular impact on Massachusetts, and it's kind of just embroiled the state and also our congressional delegation. Uh, obviously, Senator Elizabeth Warren, big person about bank regulation, uh, is kind of the face of trying to fix this and you know bring back tougher regulations on banks that she says could have prevented these collapses after there was a Trump-era rollback of a law that, of course, because there's always a Massachusetts connection, has Barney Frank behind it. So there's a lot of kind of fighting and finger pointing happening in Washington right now. 
But Jen, you took a good look at the impacts locally. So tell us about that. Right. So when you think about Silicon Valley Bank's collapse, the first thing that probably comes to mind is the tech center and the innovation sector, because that's where most of its holdings were. But it was also propping up a lot of affordable housing investments in California and in Massachusetts. Notably in Massachusetts, they'd purchased Boston private financial holdings in 2021. So for less than two years, they'd had this pretty major lender in the affordable housing and community development space here in Massachusetts. So when the news that SVB was crashing, there was a run on the bank, everyone kind of panicked in the affordable housing space. They're a little bit relieved. I say a little. They're very relieved that the federal government is going to be guaranteeing the deposits that people already had in those banks. So people aren't worried about whether or not they can pull their money out now. But there's a real hole in kind of the future for what you're doing when you're planning for how to finance affordable housing projects. I talked with the state SVB was a lender in one-sixth of all of the active affordable housing projects in the state right now. There are seven major projects in the city of Boston that they were lenders in. So it's kind of kicked off this big scramble, not just to figure out what to do in the next month or so, but also if there isn't a, a really reassuring resale of SVB, there is the big question about whether or not there's a reasonable path forward with the banking infrastructure that we have now aside from them. And the Healy administration is also looking for paths forward. They're talking in terms of a couple of years at this point of impacts, uh, you know, from affordable housing to the startup ecosystem, that they're now trying to find ways to partner with communities and businesses and keep this going because they're all about making Massachusetts more affordable and competitive and driving economic growth. And this this could derail that or at least impact it a little bit. And when I talked to the Economic Development Secretary, Yvonne Howe, earlier this week, that's what she was saying. They're really trying to look at this now over the next few years of potential impacts, right as they're trying to sell her first economic agenda on Beacon Hill. Well, with that kind of out of the way, but still definitely on our radar, and presumably before we lose power from the alleged bomb cyclone winds whipping through the Northeast right now, probably destroying all of our audio quality, I think we should ask ourselves, why are we here today? Are we cold? Are we sad? Are we lonely? What are we doing? And when will I stop seeing these ads for sports gambling in Massachusetts? Oh my God, they're everywhere. But (laughs) luckily, I don't think that there's any of those ads on our pod here. What is on our pod today is Auditor Diana DiZoglio, who will be unpacking her big audit announcements, including her probe of the legislature. Are we ready to get started? Here we go. As we've covered plenty of times on this here pod, lawmakers on Beacon Hill aren't subject to public records law. Business is often done behind closed doors, major legislation is pushed through with little to no debate, and you often can't even tell how legislators voted. Our guest today wants to change that. She's asking the House and Senate to open its books to the auditor's office for the first time in a century, and she's here now to tell us why. Auditor Diana DiZoglio, welcome back to The Horse Race. Thank you so much for having me. It is great to be back. It's been 
uh, it's been a little bit, but uh, excited to be back on with you and, uh, and uh, great to see everybody. So for those unfamiliar with your backstory, uh, before you were auditor, you spent about a decade serving in the House and Senate. So what did you see and experience there as a legislator that bothered you and that you want to try and shine a light on now? Yeah, uh, so I've been pretty public about, you know, my my feelings regarding lack of transparency and accountability in the state legislature. Uh, oftentimes I would get up on the uh, floor of the legislative bodies in which I served and advocate for uh, changes to various provisions that I believe would have added to the ability for everyday working families like ours to get access to and accountability from uh, our state agencies, including uh, the legislature. And you know, one of the things that I, I think that we became most known for in our advocacy efforts in my office was uh, you know, making sure that we were preventing the abuse of taxpayer dollars from going towards things like non-disclosure agreements that can cover up all sorts of harassment, discrimination, uh, and abuse of all kinds, not just in the legislature, but across our state agencies. Uh, but also we talked about just different things, uh, you know, to help to increase, trans increase transparency and accountability in the process, like making sure that, you know, uh, the, the centralization of power uh, challenge in the legislature was being addressed, uh, that things like committee votes, you know, not being made public was something that was, was discussed. Uh, and, you know, talking about how much time people in the general public have to be able to access information regarding bills that are being voted on. Um, and, you know, highlighting the fact that, you know, sometimes those things get done uh, in a way that uh, prevents people from actually being able to advocate to the best of their ability, uh, where a lot of folks have expressed to us that they get information uh, after and not before the decisions have already been made regarding uh, different bills being voted on into law. So, you know, this audit, um, and, you know, Jennifer was asking me to, to keep it brief, so I don't want to belabor the point here, but uh, I do think that, uh, you know, when we talk about uh, this audit, just a, a lot of people would like some, some clarification about some of the things that we, we seek to look at. And all of those things can actually be found in our engagement letter, uh, that we are looking at things like budgetary, hiring, uh, spending and procurement, amongst other things, uh, and seek to simply shine a light on what's happening uh, in the process and, you know, ensure that uh, regular everyday people have a seat at the table where the decisions are being made. So you mentioned that this is a pretty wide ranging audit. Uh, the engagement letter was useful, at least to kind of point us in, in some directions. But is it a catch all? Uh, you mentioned in the letter that it's not limited to, for instance, the committee appointments, budget and hiring, the House and Senate rules. So where are you kind of thinking about targeting your approach? Because the legislature does a lot. For sure. And uh, being a new auditor, I wanted to make sure that we were doing this um, with, uh, you know, the, um, the standards that are recommended to us by the uh, Government Accountability Organization through the National State Auditors Association, the uh, entity that actually audits our office. Uh, there are government auditing standards that our office is required to follow in order for us to be in compliance. So we actually have been actively reaching out to them to make sure that we're following the guidelines necessary to make sure that this audit is done with a standard of integrity uh, according to their standards, their uh, set of processes and procedures that we are governed by. And depending on uh, you know, uh, that interaction, uh, you, know, or, or, you know, what we will be able to cover and not cover, um, a lot of that will be discussed, I should say. 
in that interaction um, and, and worked out during that process. But this is the first time that this has been done uh, to this extent, at least, uh, you know, as far as like looking at the financials and what have you, uh, that we can find uh, since 1922. Um, and we are looking through some of the other books too to find like potential other examples, but that's the last one that we've been able to find up to this, this period. So of course, after a uh, hundred years, uh, there uh, are going to obviously be some, some questions about uh, how to best approach certain topics. And that's why we are seeking currently guidance from uh, the entity that, again, uh, sets the standards for our auditing processes and procedures. So one of the other questions surrounding this, though, is do you have the authority to do this audit? Because your predecessor said no, you say yes. So explain to us, you know, how that is. I mean, that was actually something that, first of all, the answer is yes, we do have the authority to do this. It's very clear in Chapter 11, Section 12 in our governing statute. There has been a conversation surrounding, you know, public records being a potential challenge. Our office is not governed by that statute. We're governed by Chapter 11, Section 12 regarding our abilities and the powers of the office to be able to get access to uh, information to assist us in the auditing process. Certainly, uh, because this office is not one that conducts personal investigations, uh, personally identifiable information is able to be redacted uh, from the documents that are requested from our office. Uh, but our office does have the authority to request those documents and to obtain those documents according to Chapter 11, Section 12, which mandates that we audit uh, all entities and uh, uh, departments. Now, if you recall from the 1922 uh, audit that was done, the title of the legislature, it's, it's named the Legislative Department. Uh, so all departments, all entities uh, are required to be audited by our office at least once every three years. And uh, we are committed to ensuring that happens by making sure that the legislature um, becomes part of that list again. It sort of magically just fell off of the list through the years, even though uh, it was done previously. And this was actually something that was a political discussion uh, during the time that our previous auditor, and I believe it was Manny Con Mary Connaughton, were, were uh, debating these issues um, years ago in, in uh, one of the races for, for state auditor, where uh, you know, both had actually agreed that it was in the, the power of the, the uh, auditor's office to be able to conduct these sorts of audits. And uh, I believe it was Mary that said, to, to my recollection, I was, I was just reading this the other day. Um, I didn't actually catch this when I was uh, campaigning during the last year and a half, but I, it was highlighted to me during the last couple of days that this was brought up during previous campaigns and that, you know, it was mentioned uh, by those involved that that separation of powers uh, argument that continues to be made uh, really doesn't hold water. And that's been my position this entire time is that our office audits the judiciary. Our office audits the courts. Uh, so we do have the authority to go in. Now, certainly anybody uh, can decide that they want to resist uh, the opportunity to work alongside of our office to help increase transparency, accountability, and equity. Um, but it certainly is within the power of the office. And it's my hope that the legislature will uh, comply, that they will work alongside of us, uh, because I know a lot of folks are interested in making sure that our legislative process works as efficiently and effectively as possible for all the residents that we jointly serve. So you mentioned 
compliance or cooperation from the legislature there. Uh, I think because this might come down to an argument about whether you're literally authorized to audit them, do you have any tools to make the legislature comply or does this possibly just have to go to the courts if there's pushback? Well, the statute says that the courts uh, are authorized to uh, uh, require the production of documents uh, and, and testimony that we may need to be able to complete our audits. But it is my hope that legislative leaders will see this as the opportunity that it is to help to increase, again, transparency, accountability, and equity for those who are seeking uh, nothing more than to have a seat at the table where decisions uh, are being made that impact uh, our everyday lives. So it's an opportunity. Uh, going to the court should not have to be necessary. This is an opportunity. Audits are meant to help, uh, not to hurt. You know, the slogan of the office has been, uh, you know, making government work better. And I think that that, you know, just signals right there what the intent is. Uh, certainly when audits are conducted, uh, various areas for improvement may be identified during that process. And that's a good thing because it helps us to better understand where we can focus our efforts to make the process work better. Our office, uh, before I took office several years ago, was actually audited, uh, similarly to how it was just recently audited, but the findings were quite different several years ago. The findings back then resulted in the office having to make some significant changes in order to come into compliance with government auditing standards, which they uh, apparently weren't in compliance before that. That audit produced good results. It helped this office to get back on track and to make sure that actions were taken to make sure that we were in compliance, right? So it didn't hurt the office, it helped the office to become better so that residents got better services, so that there was a quality assurance process put into place. And so that our audits uh, would be conducted with uh, more of a standard uh, you know, that, that was recognized by uh, our, our partners at the federal level and, uh, you know, make sure that, that things were being done as efficiently and as effectively as possible. So, uh, you know, to that point, uh, this is something that I believe can help uh, not just the legislature, but all of those that they seek to serve. So at the same time that you're pursuing this audit, you're also trying to get more money in your budget to help with the auditing process or, um, you know, kind of parallel to that, put audits on a four-year rotation for state agencies as opposed to the three-year rotation they're currently on. Do you have any concerns that kind of pursuing both of these at the same time might have some, you know, some bad implications for the budget? Uh, nothing ventured, nothing gained, right? So uh, we are, of course, pursuing opportunities uh, to uh, make it uh, more possible for us to do our job efficiently and effectively. And I am very happy uh, that the Healy-Driscoll administration agrees uh, with our office that a four-year cycle would make more sense than a three-year cycle as we simply looked back through the last several years and identified the fact that the mandate to conduct these audits every three years was not happening. Now, the reasons given for why that didn't take place uh, by those who, who you know, have actually worked on these audits through the years, as you know, I'm new, I was asking these questions. Uh, but some of the reasons that they identified was that you know, after that 
audit took place that identified some of the shortfalls in the system, those quality assurance measures were implemented to fix some of those challenges. And uh, the process was, um, you know, the process had some measures implemented to help to bring uh, some additional integrity to the auditing process. So that um, ended up causing some of these audits to take uh, longer to conduct, going through that quality assurance process, making sure that they're following government auditing standard guidelines, uh, cause those audits to take a little bit more time, resulting in those audits not getting done uh, in that three-year period. So uh, in my understanding, I think it's at, at least the last 12 years or so-ish, uh, uh, that uh, the mandate has not been met. So we're looking for ways to make sure that the mandate is met uh, at least within each administration's term, right? Because we wanna make sure that all agencies are able to be held accountable um, and that people have the information they need to be able to assess each administration's actions. Mine, the Haley Driscoll administration um, during those, those uh, cycles. So four years and the addition of some staff we believe would go a long way and I did lay out during the budget conversation, you know, the cost savings that are provided uh, if you break it down even just by employee in some of these departments that for each employee that is working on various cases they are bringing in uh, a tremendous amount in savings to the Commonwealth by rooting out, uh, you know, some of the waste the fraud and the abuse that we're seeing in various agencies. Uh, identified through our B, uh, um, our Bureau of Special Investigations, for example. So how are you prioritizing these audits? You know, we you just talked, I think, about why it's so tricky to even hit the 200-some agencies that you're supposed to be looking at on a three-year loop with the staff that you have. Um, and, you know, according to Statehouse News, there hasn't been any response to your office yet from House and Senate leadership. So if you have to be kind of chasing down legislative leaders and meeting all of the other existing auditors obligations, how are you prioritizing that? So uh, it's a mix between implementing my current plan uh, that I discussed with voters for the last year and a half or so, and making sure that we are still engaged in the audits that were begun under the previous administration's leadership. We want to make sure that the transition uh, continues to be smooth, uh, and it has been smooth. Um, our, our staff's been working on some of the audits that they had originally begun. We actually have, I think it's about 72 audits uh, currently being worked on right now. Uh, so uh, that's a good thing. A lot of folks will say, you know, well, this is going to take some time. That's going to take some time regarding some of the, the more high profile audits, uh, which, you know, they, they become more high profile because these are things that the voters are are saying they're you know, most concerned with. You'll hear a lot about the MBTA safety audit. Obviously, you know, as is uh, demonstrated on this podcast, uh, you know, the legislature is something that people are really interested in, right? Uh, but we have a lot of different audits that are actually taking place right now. Uh, we are going to be um, working on right now uh, an audit with the Supplier Diversity Office to look at uh, equity in state contracting and how we can potentially assist in, in that regard. We know that less than 1% of our state contracts that go out in the billions of dollars go out to minority businesses. So, you know, we committed to, to analyzing some of the procurement processes and procedures in state government. Uh, we have been auditing uh, various uh, entities such as our RTAs, our regional transit authorities, looking at things like paratransit, making sure our disabled folks get the services that they need. 
uh, so on and so forth. So we do have other audits that are ongoing. Uh, like I said, we're in the middle of, I believe it's 72 audits right now. So it's quite a lot. And just so folks know, our auditors are able to work on multiple audits at a time. So when we send engagement letters to the legislature, for example, uh, our audit team is not sort of just sitting around waiting and not able to take action on any other items during that time. Uh, they are hard at work on the other uh, topics that um, are, are under their purview for any given um, agency that they are in the middle of auditing. So, uh, you know, juggling right now all those different opportunities. Uh, and uh, I will say I'm really grateful to have an incredible staff that's doing uh, a stand up job in making sure that we uh, have and continue to transition smoothly. Again, wrapping up those audits that were begun under the previous auditor and beginning. Uh, the audits that we committed to doing. So you sort of got to what we were about to tee up next is the performance review of the MBTA that uh, you've launched that will essentially cover all of 2021 and 2022. Can you tell us what you're looking to find here and anything about what you've uncovered so far? Yeah, we're taking a look at performance uh, in, in you know areas mostly, as I committed to previously, that um, impact safety. And it is called a performance audit, but it's a performance and safety audit. We're looking at safety risk management um, and, uh, you know, making sure that we are hearing from residents during this process. We've actually been inviting uh, stakeholders to come in and to meet with us. Uh, we've been letting the public know that if they have any information that they think would assist us, that we are happy to take meetings. Uh, and we have had folks that have called in that have come in to meet with us to let us know about some of the different challenges that they think exist, some of the areas that they think we might be able to look in. So we're still in that phase of, uh, you know, planning and meeting with residents to, to, to get feedback. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's been a great opportunity to hear from folks. We still invite folks to, to call in and to speak with us. Um, I will say that in addition to that audit that we are conducting, we are simultaneously advocating for the passage of uh, a piece of legislation that was filed uh, by, by our office, by Senator Liz Miranda and by Representative Worrell uh, to create a permanent uh, MBTA and transportation audit unit uh, within the office of the state auditor. It's my position that while it is great to be able to conduct a performance and safety audit uh, at this time, that in order for us to see the systemic changes that we need to see and to make sure that accountability is increased to the level that it needs to be increased by, that we're going to need ongoing audits to occur to continually help to shine a light on problematic or potentially problematic areas um, in the MBT, within the MBTA and in our transportation system to assist the administration, to assist the legislature, to assist stakeholders, to be able to focus their attention on uh, areas that we've helped to identify that need to be focused on. And, uh, you know, that is something that I'm very grateful we have the support of some of our, legislate, of our legislators on. Uh, I'm hoping that it's something that is included in the upcoming budget proposal. We are advocating for that uh, because we can, like I said, we can do this one audit uh, and, and, you know, put out the, the, um, the findings, but in my opinion, we're going to need more than just a one and done audit with, you know, a few audit topics to be able to increase accountability the way it needs to be increased. We have received uh, a tremendous amount of information, a lot more than what will be able to be included in just one 
um, one audit. So uh, we are advocating for that. We ask people, if you care about increased accountability at the MBTA and beyond, please contact your legislators. Please uh, ask them to co-sponsor that legislation filed by Senator Miranda and Representative Chris Worrell. And you've talked before, and when you were testifying before the legislature, you were talking about the cycle of, of these audits and how a number of these things have kind of come up in the news, but they've also just sort of been up and due for audits in your office. And one of the other very big ones, of course, was an audit of the Massachusetts Convention Center Authority after complaints from Black employees and a vendor alleging racial discrimination. So where is that review at right now? And how should people kind of be perceiving the interaction between the auditor's office and sort of the public news cycle? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that is actually up for an audit right now. Uh, it is timely that we are uh, conducting an audit. Our office was uh, receiving outreach from folks in our communities regarding uh, requests to audit the agency. And once our office uh, recognized the fact that we were receiving outreach from folks asking us to audit this entity and that it was already up for uh, an audit, it had been the, the three-year mark, uh, you know, we made the, the judgment call to go ahead and to uh, begin the process of uh, engaging with the uh, organization. Uh, the things that were raised, uh, I think, uh, really reflect what was laid out in my social justice and equity audit plan. Uh, the issues that were publicly raised, such as the use of non-disclosure agreements and uh, you know taxpayer dollars potentially going towards funding those, right? Uh, that's not anything that I don't think you know that anyone on this podcast is surprised to hear me talking about. Um, so, of course, folks were calling our office to, to let us know about the fact that this, you know, was, was a concern. Uh, the other issue that was raised in the Boston Globe uh, first and then in other uh, media outlets was um, the issue surrounding uh, contracting and procurement, right? So the first three points of my social justice equity audit plan focus on looking at our state contracting and procurement processes and procedures and making sure that we are uh, trying to increase access to opportunity for all residents in Massachusetts, uh, uh, rather than just those who are, uh, you know, uh, powerful and well-connected, right? So we've been talking about these things for, for quite some time. Uh, and I think that that has, uh, you know, uh, had a, an impact, so to speak, on, you know, folks contacting us to ask us to conduct these, you know, these audits where they, they see issues that we've talked about in the last, you know, year or two, or so, and in you know, kind of think what well, we heard Diana talking about this right for the last year and a half. So we're going to call her and see if she can conduct the audit. And it just so happens, like I said, that that uh, was an agency that is, um, or that was you know found to be due for an audit. So what's the next audit on your list? Any news to share with us today? Uh, you know, the news is is that we're hard at work, and we have these seventy-two audits that are ongoing, and we are. Uh, working hard to make sure that they're done in a timely fashion as efficiently and as effectively as possible. And just wanna, again, just put the invitation out there to folks who wanna contact us about areas that you think we need to be focusing on in state government, uh, or if you have tips uh, on where to start looking. I feel like I'm a reporter like you guys right now. You guys always say contact, contact you guys with tips, right? But um, our office does have um, a hotline for people to call as well if they have uh, different things that they want to share with us. And I will go ahead and share that phone number. So you may call 617-727-8638 uh, if you would like to uh, 
you know, let us know about a topic that that you think we should focus on. Um, or you could just come in and have a meeting with us. I'm, I'm here in my office today. Um, so feel free to stop by and say hello. We'd love to see you. Well, I'll have to check back with you in a, a few months and see how many people heard the pod and uh, called in. But for now, that's all the time we have. Auditor Desaglio, thanks so much for being with us today. Sounds great. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, we'll see you guys soon. We'll leave you today with a story from our Thanksgiving is definitely over, right? Department here at the Horse Race HQ. According to the Boston Globe, a Dorchester man was attacked by a turkey after trying to shoo him from the road over the weekend, and the video's gone viral because we in Massachusetts love a viral animal video. Lisa, I just need to know, can you relate to this man's plight? Have you ever been attacked by a turkey or maybe like a stoned Boston common squirrel? Ooh, squirrels, maybe. Um, But turkeys, I mean, come on, everyone knows. You don't mess with the turkeys. They're big. They roam in packs. They have beak goblet things. There was a pack of them that used to live, I guess, or haunt the parking lot of the Eagle Tribune where I worked for many years up in the Merrimack Valley. And you would like pull around the building, pull into the parking lot, and there was just this pack of turkeys. And there was nowhere for you to go. You had to wait for the turkeys to decide where they wanted to go. And that is the rule of turkeys. So I'm not really sure what happened here. I'm not either. I mean, any reporter who has ever covered local news would know that gangs of turkeys roam Massachusetts looking for victims. Uh, Pour one out for uh, Turkey Tom in Brookline and his fearsome gang. But for those of you out there who want to watch the encounter, it is on YouTube with the absolutely appropriate title, Man Chases Turkey, Comma, Loses. So I think... I think maybe we have to leave you with don't go pick a fight with an angry, tiny dinosaur. That's all the time that we have for today. I'm signing off with Jennifer Smith. Steve Cazella will be back next week. Our producer is Adam Boyaji. Don't forget to give the horse race a review wherever you're hearing us now. Subscribe to our newsletters of the pod, the Massachusetts Politico Playbook and Commonwealth's Daily Download, and reach out to the Mass Inc. Polling Group for polls. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.